This morning's scripture comes from Romans 15, verses 1 through 13. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of you please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accordance with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles in him with the Gentile hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Lake Baldwin. It is a privilege to be with you all. Uh, Let me lead us in prayer. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, what a privilege to be with your church, to preach your word. Uh, We acknowledge that uh, unless you shine your light on your word, uh, we are blind to see it. So would you open the eyes of our heart that we might see you rightly and see what you have for us this morning. Father, I take great comfort in the fact that though I don't know the people's hearts gathered here that you do, um, and so, Lord, would you meet them with the power of your gospel uh, right where you have them? For those among us that are maybe too comfortable, would you disrupt them with the power of your gospel? And for those of us here that uh, might be too disrupted, uh, would you comfort us with the power of your gospel? We pray all of these things in your son's name. Amen. Well, like uh, Brian said, uh, my name is Hardy Reynolds. I'm the campus minister with RUF out at uh, UCF, and you are right. It is a lot of acronyms. Um, I try to mix it up whenever I say it. Um, But as a campus minister, uh, doing campus ministry, I meet a lot of new people, um, and so I'm constantly introducing myself, and I'll often get the question or just the comments, um, oh, Hardy, that's an interesting first name, Uh, to which I'll have to say, well, actually, my first name is Thomas, and uh, depending on what circles uh, the person runs in or who they follow, they'll often say, oh, you mean like the wrestler or the actor, Tom Hardy? And I'll have to, at that point, say, no, I'm actually named after the English novelist and poet, Thomas Hardy. And the last time I told that to a student, he literally said, well, that's kind of lame. And so I didn't name myself. Um, My dad, one of his passions in college was English literature, so Thomas Hardy Reynolds is is my name. Um, But 
in college, one of my passions was actually uh, Christian ministry, RUF. I was a member of RUF. I became a Christian right before going to college. And so when I got involved with RUF, I was just hungry for God's word, for the fellowship with his people. And so I have a passion for campus ministry, and it is a privilege to be a partner uh, with you all as you all seek to love and reach uh, Orlando and the greater Orlando area with the gospel. Um, I became a Christian, like I said, the summer in between actually, graduating high school and going to college. And it happened in a conversation with a high school mentor. Now going into this conversation, I had been studying the Bible, I had been reading uh, God's word with a few of my friends for almost over a year. Uh, but going into this meeting, I would have said and been convinced that ultimately the Christian life and my standing before God uh, was ultimately on me, how God viewed, viewed me, my salvation was up to how I performed, how I behaved. Uh, and in that meeting, something happened. He uh, was talking to me about a number of things, but one question he asked me was, Hardy, what do you think you'll do in college? Well, my dad is a dentist, my grandfather was a dentist, my great-grandfather was a dentist, so I told him I'll, I'll likely pursue dentistry. Um, and then he asked me this question, have you ever thought about vocational ministry? And when he asked that, something happened to me. I had all these feelings of insecurity, of inadequacy, of imposter syndrome, and I told him as much. I told him, actually, I don't feel strong enough spiritually to, to lead people. I don't feel like I'm good enough as a Christian to really um, pursue that as a calling. And I'm thankful for what my mentor said to me at the time. Rather than telling me all the different gifts that he saw in me, he simply shared the gospel, which means good news. And he shared it from the story of Jesus' baptism at the very beginning of his ministry. And at the end of this story, Jesus, after being baptized, comes out of the water and the heavens open up and the Father declares, this is my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And something happened to me in that moment. I realized that the gospel was good news because it simultaneously hit me like a favorite blanket and a freight train all at the same time. Why it hit me like a favorite blanket is because it was the first time I realized that by my repentance and by my faith that I actually become united to Jesus. And the Father's blessing, his view of the Son actually becomes mine by faith. That what Jesus has uh, had before the Father for all eternity actually becomes ours by grace, that we become viewed as beloved sons in whom the Father is well pleased. But it also hit me like a freight train because I realized that if I have the unwavering, uh, unchanging smile um, and, and good pleasure of the creator of the universe, uh, that actually means that that has implications for my life. I have to stop living to please myself. I have to stop living to get the pleasure of others uh, manipulatively, manipulatively in the ways in which I was living. So those two things happened in that conversation. It was a great encouragement. If you've felt or tasted the power of grace in your life, you might be able to um, recognize that. But you might also be able to recognize that the Christian life has its ups and downs, uh, that we are in constant need of encouragement and endurance. Uh, we, we go through different seasons. And one such season, one such season for me was actually uh, in seminary. I was training to become a minister and these old feelings of imposter syndrome and insecurity started showing up again. 
A lot of my professors and a couple of really good friends knew about this, and one of my friends was shopping at a thrift store, and she found an old vintage book. And when she gave it to me, she said with all excitement, Hardy, this is your story. And she had found a vintage copy of Thomas Hardy's last novel, the author that I'm named after, uh, and it's called The Well-Beloved. And when I see that book on my shelf, Thomas Hardy, The Well-Beloved, I'm encouraged. I'm, I'm actually given hope to endure because what it does is it reminds me of my status in the gospel of this is my story. This is the one that I've been united to. Why, why do I share that part of my story with you? What's the point of me sharing that? Well, Paul, in this passage, he is sharing a similar sentiment to the people he's writing with. To Jew and Gentile alike, he is holding the story of the scriptures out saying, this is your story, meant to give you encouragement, endurance for the purpose of instruction, and ultimately, that you might abound in great hope. That's what he's holding out to us this morning as well. But I wonder, do you read the Old Testament like that? When the Old Testament is preached, do you experience it uh, that way? And if not, why not? Uh, maybe uh, you read it out of a sense of duty. You know you're supposed to, but it really doesn't make much sense. Maybe you've long since stopped reading the Old Testament uh, just because it, it brings up feelings of discouragement or inadequacy of, I really don't know what this is talking about. And what Paul is holding out for us is his view of Scripture that all of it, all for whatever was written beforehand is actually profitable, is valuable for the Christian. And we're gonna see that in three different ways this morning. He, he says the Old Testament was written for your instruction, for your encouragement, and for your hope. And the three ways we're seeing this is, first, it's a purpose for instruction. Secondly, it's a pathway of endurance and encouragement. And then finally, it's a promise of hope. So how does it accomplish this? Well, though scripture is made up of uh, many different books, it has an unchanging purpose that it holds before the people of God. Old Testament professor Jay Sklar at Covenant Seminary put it this way. He said, the purpose is for humanity to enjoy fellowship with God, reflecting his character in the world, and in this way, filling all the earth with his kingdom of justice, mercy, love, holiness for his glory and for our good. That's the purpose. Now, as Paul is writing in Romans in our passage, he is intimately aware of this purpose and he is in the middle of this conversation uh, about Christian liberty and, and how that is to play out and be exercised in the context of Christian fellowship and Christian community. And he's been addressing two different types of Christians. He, he names one the strong and the other the weak. It's these two different groups. And the strong Christian in this context are Christians who are rightly convinced that for them all food was clean. And the weak Christians are those convinced that some foods, given cultural context and convictions, um, actually are still unclean. And so the strong Christians here are likely Jewish believers um, and Gentile Christians that have been convinced that all foods are available to them that are clean. And the, those that are considered weak here are likely Jewish Christians whose conscience still convinces them they, they are unable to partake of all foods. And so he has just urged, Paul that is, has just urged these two different groups for the strong Christians to not despise the weaker Christian, to not distress them, to not damage them. 
And he's also just urged the weaker brothers and sisters in the fellowship to not to judge. And now then he turns and he exhorts the strong Christians of whom he considers himself a part. We see that in verse one. We who are strong. He exhorts them to three things. He says, to bear with the failings of the weak, not to please ourselves, and then positively to please his neighbor for his good to build him up. So the first here, to bear, it can either mean to put up with or tolerate, uh, or it can actually mean to carry, to support. And given the context, it's obvious that it has this second meaning, that the strong in the Christian community are to carry, they're to support the weaker brothers and sisters. And secondly, he says, the strong are also not to please themselves. Why, why must he say this? Well, that's our heart's bent. We live self-preferentially. We, we constantly put ourselves first. And he's saying in the Christian community, in Christian fellowship, it ought not to be so. The strong are actually to bear with the weak, not damaging their conscience, even though it's mistaken. That's what he's saying. And then he says, finally, they're to use their strength to please their neighbor, to please their brother and sister for their good, to build them up. And he roots the reasoning for these three exhortations in the person and work of Christ. He says in verse three, for Christ did not please himself. One commentator, he put it this way, that that phrase, Christ did not please himself, sums up both the meaning of the incarnation and the character of Christ's earthly ministry. Instead of pleasing himself, Christ did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, gave himself to the will of the Father for the good of his people. That's what Paul is exhorting uh, these strong Christians to. And he shows them not by telling a story from Jesus' ministry, not by referring to the incarnation, but doing what? He quotes the Old Testament. He quotes specifically Psalm 69. It's a psalm that's all about the unjust sufferings of a righteous man. And Paul quotes verse nine where it says, the reproaches or the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. What he's doing is he's showing that Christ so thoroughly identified himself with the will of the Father, with the purpose of the Father, that the insults intended for God actually land on Jesus. And then he does this really interesting kind of aside. He takes his audience and, and us on this amazing aside as if to say now, now if Christ, if he fulfills this one verse of scripture, referring to the unjust sufferings of a righteous man, and this can instruct us in how we're to live in fellowship and community with one another, then how much more is the entire Old Testament scriptures written for this instructive purpose? How much more value is the whole Old Testament if this is true? And that's what he is aiming to show. Verse four, he says, in saying, for whatever was written in former days, Paul is referring to the whole Old Testament. He, he's saying, was written for our instruction, meaning every part of the Old Testament for the people of God has value in instructing them. It's an amazing claim that Paul's making. And it shows an amazingly high view of all the scriptures. John Stott is a commentator, and on this verse, he uh, summarizes kind of five things that, that Paul is packing in to uh, this passage of his view of scripture. And the first is this. Paul's view of the Old Testament is, is that it was not written only for the people there and then, but for us, here and now, in the present, to teach us, 
to build us up, to encourage us. And so far from being a distant book uh, that, that we might be confused by, he's saying uh, it was written for you today, sitting in your chair in Winter Park High School. It is written for you. Secondly, he's showing too that it has this amazing inclusive value, all of scripture, in quoting only half a verse from Psalm 69 and then immediately making this claim saying whatever was written He's showing the the value and the instructive purpose of all the Old Testament. Whatever was written, all of it, can bring about instruction for the people of God. Later uh, in the passage, he actually goes on to quote every part of the Old Testament to show uh, that God is united in his purpose of bringing a people, Jew and Gentile alike, to worship him with one voice, he, he quotes from Deuteronomy in verse 10 saying, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. He quotes the historical narrative of God's people in 2 Samuel 22 when King David, he declares, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles. He quotes from the prophets when he says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. And then finally he quotes the writings, or that is the Psalms, when he says, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. Paul is showing that scripture has this inclusive view. In other words, there's not one part, there's not one page that you can turn to that is not meant to bring you instruction, encouragement, endurance, and hope. While that's not to say that every part is, is equally important or equally valuable, it is to say that it's all valuable. Uh, we see that when, when Jesus actually has to rebuke the Pharisees uh, for their neglecting the weightier matters of the law. Uh, they're, ne- they're, they're neglecting justice and mercy um, and faithfulness. But he is saying that all of it is good for our instruction and valuable to us as believers. Next, he says the, the whole Old Testament is useful because it equips us in our understanding of Christ. This is Paul's agreement with Jesus, our Lord Jesus on the road to Emmaus when he finds uh, his discouraged disciples after the crucifixion, after the resurrection, and he, he comes up to them and then he starts to explain everything that has occurred from, it says, from the law, from the prophets, and from the writings concerning himself. All of scripture points us to Christ. Paul knows this, Christ knew this, and we are invited through the Apostle Paul, through the Holy Spirit, to see this this morning. Fourthly, it's also incredibly practical. Paul is saying scripture is useful for your your daily life. He says in other places uh, that the scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Or in the very next verse, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Psalm 119 says, this is my comfort in my affliction, that your promises gives me life. My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. Or Paul elsewhere, writing to the church in Corinth, says, now these things happen to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. Scripture is able to do all these things to make one wise for salvation, to teach, to reprove, to correct, to train in righteousness, to comfort in affliction and suffering, to give life. And then Paul adds here in our passage, it also gives encouragement, gives endurance for our Christian life. 
And then he roots it finally in why. How is it able to do these things? Well, it's because it's from God. It's his very word. In verse four, he equates the encouragement and the endurance to scripture and then immediately following in verse five, he says this, these are attributed to God himself. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you. This shows you that it's, it's God himself speaking not only then but continues to speak today through his word in scripture that you might be instructed that leads to encouragement, endurance, and ultimately to hope. In other words, learning from scripture is, is less like having to go to the tutoring session for the class you're failing, uh, and it's a little bit more like learning something that brings you great joy, comfort, encouragement, instruction. Whatever that might be for you, that is what reading scripture in the Old Testament in particular is supposed to bring. Now, my guess is I might have lost several of you over the last couple minutes because you kept thinking, um, that's not my experience, Hardy. That's not how I read the Old Testament. That's not how I actually experience when I sit down to read or, or I hear the Old Testament uh, preached. And this second point is for you. Scripture as a pathway of endurance and encouragement. So if you find yourself often discouraged uh, and fatigued and scripture is, is not providing you endurance and hope, this may sound very funny, but take heart, you are reading it wrong. You're reading it wrong. Paul's saying here, all of it, all of it, every word, every page can be useful for providing encouragement and endurance for the people of God. And when it doesn't, the problem isn't located in the word. The problem is located in our hearts. We so often look outside of ourselves uh, with, with critical hearts, uh, whether it be to creation, uh, to others, um, and, and oftentimes even to God about our problems. But what scripture brings us back to over and over again is that the problem actually resides in our heart. It's an internal problem with an external solution. And encouragement, the strength is found outside of ourselves, in God. Paul knows this. The Old Testament authors know this. And it's because God knows this. God knows that you need encouragement. He knows that you need endurance for this Christian faith. We can oftentimes, maybe in our discouragement or in our fatigue, view God as waiting impatiently, far off, maybe even looking down on us, saying, weary, brokenhearted, um, doubter, confused, are you still following me at that pace? Are you still there? Are you still asking that question? Are you, are you still discouraged? I thought you'd be further along by now. In our discouragement, in our fatigue, we can often experience uh, God as saying those types of things. But in our passage, we have good news. That is far from the posture of our God who actually longs to pour out fresh encouragement and endurance on his people. He doesn't stand far off. He actually waits for you to turn to him that he might bless you with that encouragement, with that endurance, and ultimately that it might lead to your hope. That's his posture. He knows that this life is hard. He knows uh, that we will get fatigued. Paul elsewhere considers um, the Christian life as a race of endurance. Uh, consider uh, one of the most well-known 
endurance races with me for a second. It takes place in July. It's the Tour de France. It is a bike race that happens uh, over 21 days. Uh, it happens um, for a grueling amount of time. Each day ride averages over 100 miles. There's about 20 teams with eight riders per team. Uh, the average speed that these riders are riding at for those 21 days over 100 miles a day is around 30 miles an hour. And they're scaling some of Europe's biggest mountains during that time and distance. Uh, not to mention that there's often uh, terrible crashes and these riders are expected to be able to gather themselves after hitting the pavement at 30 miles an hour, hop back on a bike and just keep going. Um, one doctor actually who specialized in the science of longevity with endurance athletes, he said this, not to diminish the pain of NFL running backs who experience being tackled weekly, but the level of pain of these riders that they must endure is monumentally greater than the pain of American football players. What's the point? Why do I say that? Paul knows that this life requires endurance. The Old Testament writers knew that following God required endurance. They knew that there would be pain. And rather than standing far off, God actually waits to pour out fresh strength, fresh endurance and encouragement to you. Consider King David, when he wrote Psalm 23, when he wrote those words, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He writes those words not because that's his constant lived experience, but actually because he likely knows something of the anti-Psalm 23 life. David Powelson is an author who actually wrote uh, an anti-Psalm 23. And it's a little bit long, but uh, I want you all to, to lean in and listen to this anti-Psalm 23 experience, because I think it captures something of our discouragement and fatigue at times. It says this, I'm on my own. No one looks out for me or protects me. I experience continual sense of need. Nothing's quite right. I'm always restless. I'm easily frustrated and often disappointed. It's a jungle. I feel overwhelmed. It's a desert. I'm thirsty. My soul feels broken, twisted, and stuck. I can't fix myself. I stumble down some dark paths. Still, I insist I want to do what I want to do, when I want, how I want but life's confusing. Why don't things ever really work out? I'm haunted by emptiness and futility, shadows of death. I fear the big hurt and final loss. Death is waiting for me at the end of every road, but I'd rather not think about that. I spend my life protecting myself. Bad things can happen. I find no lasting comfort. I'm alone, facing everything that could hurt me. Are my friends really friends? Other people, they use me for their own ends. I can't really trust anyone. No one has my back. No one is really for me except me. And I'm so much all about me, sometimes it's sickening. I belong to no one except myself. My, my cup is never quite full enough. I'm left empty. Disappointment follows me all the days of my life. Will I just be obliterated into nothingness? Will I be alone forever, homeless, free-falling? into a void. John Paul Sartre said, hell is other people. I have to add, hell is also myself. It's a living death and then I die. If we're honest with ourselves, 
we are prone to that lived anti-Psalm 23 experience. We're prone to discouragement, we're prone to fatigue, we're prone to hopelessness. And God, through Paul and his Holy Spirit, has a word for us. This morning, whether you read your Old Testament uh, in the mornings, whether it's through going through, uh, I think y'all are in Joshua in this sermon series, um, or if it's any way that you are engaging the Old Testament scriptures, Paul is saying God's heart is to give you instruction, encouragement, endurance, and ultimately hope that you might have confidence as you follow him. And that's our final point this morning. It's a promise of hope. When we take our eyes, when we take our efforts off of ourselves, seeking to please ourselves, seeking to live self-preferentially, when we see and flee that posture, then and only then will we begin to see God rightly. In other words, when when we admit that that's our daily posture, that it's up to me, that I I have to live self-protectively, when we acknowledge that and look to God, then and only then will we be able to see the reality of verse three in our passage where it says, for Christ, for Christ did not please himself. That Christ did not consider equality with with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on a body that experienced great pain, fatigue, He experienced the brokenness of our world. He entered into the dark realities of a world that's characterized by rebellion. He entered into the realities um, of that anti-Psalm 23 experience uh, that so many of us can, can live with. And he did so in such a way as not to please himself, but to please the Father. And what was the Father's pleasure? Well, we read in verse eight in our text, for I tell you, that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Another author of scripture, Peter, in in Acts, he says it this way, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham and in your offspring, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. And Paul, in another place, says that the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. What's he getting at? That that it is Christ, this this servant, um, that in seeking to please the Father, he actually then is able to share with all who believe in him uh, the pleasure of the Father that, that the Father has in him, that becomes our reality. Taking away our wickedness, he's able to fulfill the promises made to the fathers, fulfill the purpose that the, the Gentiles would see, the mercy and the glory of God. He's able to fulfill it. And in that, we get that status of being beloved sons in whom the Father is well pleased. He does this by going to the cross. He does this by living perfectly in this world that's characterized by rebellion without sin, going to the cross, taking on the Father's just displeasure in all the ways that we live self-preferentially, all the ways that we live manipulatively or abusively or going on and on and on. He takes that on himself and he shares what's his, the pleasure of God the smile, the delight of God. That becomes yours and mine. 
The Father is well pleased. You and I are so prone to look within uh, ourselves or to look to creation to find that sense of hope, that sense of security. But Paul is saying in lifting our eyes to look to Christ who did not please himself but pleased the Father. Considering the, the Tour de France, again, um, nobody, nobody has won the Tour without a great team. Uh, on each team that's made up of eight riders, really only one is trying to win, um, to get the, great, the best time after the 21 days. The other seven riders, their singular purpose is to lay it all out on the race, to give all their effort to make sure their guy gets across the finish line as the winner. They're, they're called domestiques, or literally servants. And that's their purpose, is to get their guy across the finish line that they might finish. Paul tells us here in our passage, verse eight, I tell you, Christ became a servant, a servant to all who would believe in him, that you might experience the faithfulness of God, that he might pour out strength and endurance, that he might get you home to that place where you will ex experience the irrepressible hope that he talks about here, that you might abound in hope. That's the reality of the passage that's being held out to us this morning. So last thing, what does that mean? What are we to do? Well, I think what this passage is calling us to then is to despair. Despair of all false hopes, all the different places that we, we look for security, um, so I want you to do one thing, one thing tomorrow morning. It could be uh, before your feet even hit the floor. Whenever you take that first look at your phone, I want you to despair. Whether that first click is to your course syllabi, um, I want you to despair of any sense of security that you're gonna get in your future uh, performance that you're trying to secure so, uh, so hard. If your first click is to um, Amazon, I want you to despair, to despair that there is any hope in one more purchase, one more promise of comfort and security. If, you're, if your click is to uh, your schedule, I want you to despair, despair of all hustleism, that you're going to uh, crack the code and uh, become somehow the productive person that you view yourself to be, that your, your work will no longer suffer from fruitlessness. Despair of that. If your first click is to the website that you said, I will never go back to, and that promise was made the night before, I want you to despair. Despair of ever being able to find pleasure in and of yourself, and look to the one. Look to the one that chose not to please himself, but to please the Father, that you might have life, that you might have hope, and that hope might abound until you are home with him. This is a promise, and this is an invitation. Let's pray. Father, what good news that you have for us, your people, that uh, you are a Father who delights to speak to us, and your word is one that reminds us that you are near, that you draw near uh, to pour out uh, your hope, your encouragement, your endurance, um, and you do that through the work of your Son, who chose to please you, Father, and so this morning, would we have eyes that are open to see the reality of your son, who he is, what he's done for us, and might that give our hearts uh, both comfort, uh, encouragement, and ultimately endurance until we're home with him. We pray this in his powerful name, amen.